This is Super Investors in the Art of Worldly Wisdom. I'm Jesse Felder. Object to the test! Back in October of last year, I had the pleasure of discussing the generational opportunity in energy stocks with Lee Gehring. At the time, he made a very compelling investment case for the energy sector. And in just the five months since then, it's nearly doubled in value. Lee and his firm still believe energy offers compelling value, but to truly appreciate it, it helps to also understand the related bubble in both renewables and electric vehicles. In this conversation, Lee's partner, Adam Rosenzweig, shares his views on the mania in these so-called green energy stocks, outlining why renewables and EVs are not the panacea for climate change investors believe them to be, and why, ironically, the best way to profit from the transition to green energy may be in the very stocks ESG investors are shunning today. So without further ado, please enjoy my conversation with Adam Rosenzweig. I wonder why fund managers can't beat the S&P 500. Because they're sheep. And sheep get slaughtered. Adam, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me. Happy to be here. Yeah, you know, I, I, it was great to talk to Lee a few months ago, um, your partner, uh, about the opportunity in energy. And obviously, that you know, the, the timing worked out terrifically. Energy's you know, performed fantastically well since that time. But I thought it would be fun to, you know, chat with you about kind of the flip side of that. But before we get into that, um, I'd love to learn a little bit more about you and, and how, how did you first become interested in finance in the markets? Sure thing. So I've been um, working on, on Wall Street since, uh, since college, uh, right out of university. Uh, I went to go work in investment banking at Lehman Brothers for a while. But actually, before that, when I was when I was still in university, uh, I had a summer internship at Newberger Berman, and I worked for a portfolio manager there named uh, Sandy Pomeroy, and had a, just a wonderful experience. She very much became a mentor of mine. And and after I had sort of finished burning myself out in investment banking, as one is apt to do for a couple of years, uh, I called up Sandy and I said, you know, do you know anyone who might might be hiring on the buy side, anyone sort of looking at, at security analysis and things of that nature. And she said, well, you, you really might uh, want to call my husband, who at that time, Lee was managing the Chilton Global Natural Resources Fund. And so I did that in 2007, and I've been working uh, for Lee and with Lee uh, ever since. It's funny how, you know, it just things work out fortuitously in that way that, uh, you know, you can, you can find somebody to work with who's not only a brilliant, you know, investor, but also, you know, a good, seems like from the outside looking in, at least, a, you know, a good partner. So Absolutely. It's been, it's been a really enriching and just a wonderful experience. Absolutely. I lucked out. So, so, that, so that's really how you came to the commodities and energy space was um, you were introduced to Lee. Uh, you know, there wasn't really anything in your background that said, hey, I really want to focus on commodities. No, that, that's exactly it. What I was looking for and what I thought was really interesting about the commodity markets was uh, there's just a huge amount of data that you could analyze and a huge amount of research that you could try to do and undertake um, as opposed to things that you know relied a little bit more on you know, consumer behaviors or, or what have you that were sort of prone to more sort of um, you know, a- abstract things. It seemed like you could really kind of dig in deep in, in the commodity space and you had a lot of sort of supply and demand numbers to work with. And if you had a uh, 
interest and an understanding and trying to figure out some of the trends in that data, there, there was probably a lot to tell you. And I think that's really sort of been, um, you know, the, the experience that I've had ever since. Well, it certainly seems like, you know, especially in recent years, it's become an area within the markets that, uh, you know, have drawn little attention. Um, you know, there's uh, it's one area where it seems like there's opportunity to do uh, a fair amount of research and digging and, and find opportunities simply because so many of these stocks and sectors and things have been left for dead. So, um, no, ab- absolutely. And, you know, I, I think. Um, if, if you if you're ever debating the efficient market hypothesis, all you have to do is look at the commodity markets because here you have things like you know copper and oil um, that have gone from you know up 150 200 percent and then lose 80 percent of their value and then come right back over the period of you know only only a year or two in some cases and and so clearly uh, not all of those prices were efficient in the sense that they weren't all incorporating all the information there and so there's definitely a huge advantage if you're willing to dig deep and if you're willing to take a little bit of a contrarian viewpoint and I think nowhere is that more prevalent today than in the energy markets and on you know as far as things that are undervalued and as far as things that are overvalued that's probably not nothing is more true than than on some of these renewable energy names where uh, the underlying fundamentals there are just really challenged in some cases, uh, and yet investors are just pouring capital into that space. And I think that's probably the most interesting part of the markets today. Yeah, and, and that's really what I wanted to to discuss with you is, you know, I spent a fair amount of time when I had Lee on the podcast talking about that opportunity in energy. And, and really, I think energy, you know, whether you're talking about traditional energy versus green energy, it, it to me is almost a perfect representation of what my friend Diego Perilla has called anti-bubbles. And, you know, energy uh, feels like the anti-bubble to the bubble in, in green energy. And you can't really, I think, fully appreciate, um, you know, the anti-bubble without understanding the bubble itself, too. So, um, what, so for, first of all, you know, let, let's just get, you know, why do you, I guess, what, what tells you right now that green energy renewables are, are in a bubble? Well, I think there's really two different things that you can look at, and they both suggest that, that really things are moving a little bit, you know, almost, almost parabolically at this point, which is usually a sign of uh, investor euphoria and things like that. You know, the first is how much money is going into the space. And you can look at things like, you know, the shares outstanding of the various ETFs, which are just absolutely exploding. Um, you can look at things like the price of, of a lot of these uh, stocks and securities. And you know, we're now in, in a corrective phase in some of them, you know, and actually looking a little dramatic now. Uh, but, you know, as of a few weeks ago, some of the hydrogen names, for instance, uh, were up almost 3,000% uh, from um, from their sort of early 2000 levels. Uh, now that's you know been cut back al- almost in half in some cases. So I think you might be starting to see finally a little bit of recognition that, that perhaps too much capital was put into that space. But if you just look at some of the moves, you know, I'm talking about uh, things like Plug Power, things like um, Ballard, uh, Tesla, obviously, you know, was, was a market darling last year. I would sort of group that in the whole renewable energy transition bucket. Uh, and that's really been sort of the flip side, uh, I think, to the to the energy trade last year. And if you look at money coming out of that space and, and then going into um, 
know, some of these new energy transitions. That's really one sign that we look at. Uh, the other sign is uh, a little bit more fundamentally driven and, and frankly is a little bit scarier in some ways. Uh, and that is if you look at the underlying project economics that some of these renewable deals are now um, you know, getting done at, uh, and particularly in wind and solar, you know, we're talking about we've heard indications of onshore wind deals um, being negotiated with a 4% project IRR. Uh, so that, that is to say, you know, if you're an onshore wind developer and you go to bid uh, a new wind farm and, and agree to power tariffs and that sort of thing, um, in, in certain parts of the world, you know, you're forced to sort of take a 4% project IRR, and that is then levered up 75% debt to equity to make it an acceptable, um, you know, equity level IRR. But that's really scary for a whole variety of reasons, you know, one being some of the assumptions on, you know, how long that wind turbine is really have to be productive uh, in, in order to, to sort of get your, your feasibility study 4% project IRRs, you know, if instead of 25 year lives, if, if that only lasts 24, 23 years, you know, all of a sudden that project is uh, eaten through its equity cushion pretty quickly. So there's some pretty scary things that, that suggest that a lot of capital is going into the market from, from the fundamental, you know, on the ground project by project level. And then certainly if you look at the price of the stocks, you know, they, they're, they're all suggesting just a huge amount of capital being poured into that space. Yeah. And I, I love that you mentioned plug power because that's one that came and just smacked me in the face you know, recently that I remember, you know, when I was, uh, you know, back uh, at, at our hedge fund, my partner was started buying plug power. We had a value uh, mandate. And so when he started buying plug power in 2000, I thought, oh my, what the heck is, we, we can't, we just can't do this. It's completely against our mandate. But I mean, plug back then went from, you know, like 30, 40 bucks a share in 98 to, you know, split adjusted $1,500 a share. And then all the way, you know, back to five, six bucks is, you know, and now it's up to 43. Again, the performance has been amazing. But it's yeah. still down, you know, like ninety five percent plus from those highs in two thousand. So, it, but I think the, the other thing that I would point out there too is that the, the market cap uh, is not really down from two thousand. That they've issued so many shares, you know, to to probably fund losses over the years. That to me, that was one that just was so reminiscent of the dot com mania. But uh, you know, you mentioned um, also EVs too. I don't know if you saw. Research Affiliates put out a piece today uh, on EVs where they basically show that uh, the entire uh, global auto market uh, doubled in valuation of market cap last year, uh, mostly driven, obviously, by EVs, even though the potential you know, for autos in the future uh, obviously hasn't doubled. And, and that, to them, is the definition of a mania, is when you have the parts worth greater than the whole, um, you know, that that's, uh, you know, obviously mathematically impossible for all those companies to 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 play out. So, um, yeah, I mean, EVs also you look at you mentioned valuations, Tesla, um, the price to sales ratio on these things just is mind boggling. No, absolutely. And I think it really is an example of, you know, the sort of strange logic on Wall Street where, um, you know, Tesla sporting a greater market cap than the entire rest of the auto industry sort of goes less questioned than some of these uh, energy companies that, you know, effectively, some of them, maybe not anymore, but certainly going back uh, six or seven months ago, if, if some of these companies never drilled another well again, 
and effectively went into full liquidation mode, they would probably have been doubles. Um, you know, but people were scrutinizing that hugely uh, as opposed to some of these names, um, you know, like like Tesla or like Plug, which, like you said, you know, has, has seen lofty values before and then, you know, destroyed a huge amount of value uh, in the past. And, and you know, whether or not it does it again remains to be seen. But certainly um, it feels as though we're, we're in a mania in some of these technologies. And, and what's really uh, frightening to us in, in some ways uh, is just some of the physical challenges, you know, that that's all on the price side of things. That's all on the investor sentiment side of things. But if you then turn and look at some of the challenges that these technologies face technically, um, that's where I think there's a real, real strong uh, disconnect between the price action and then the challenges that these guys face in the real world. Yeah, and I want to get to that because you guys make some terrific points about um, th- this transfer going from a, a relatively efficient you know, sources of uh, energy to dramatically more inefficient sources and, and the problems with that. But you know, before we before we tackle that, um, I, I want to just get your thoughts about some of the vehicles and I think strategies that are behind this, uh, you know, the, the green bubble. Um, it's hard to really separate, uh, you know, the, the green energy bubble from um, ESG and the popularity of SPACs. Uh, it, you know, it's amazing how much money has been raised um, by SPACs in, you know, over the past year, and especially so far this year, a lot of that money's going into you know these blank check companies. That that money's going into renewables, EVs. Um, do you think the unique features of SPACs versus the traditional IPO process have helped to inflate the bubble in green energy? I think so. I, I think that you know. The, the SPAC phenomenon, which you, you've obviously done a lot more work on than I have, uh, but you know, from my sort of position, and we we don't we don't do anything in the SPAC space really, other than other than watch from the outside uh, w- with skepticism. Um, obviously, it's a very unique structure, uh, but I think it's reflective of basically free cost of capital that we've had for the last however many years. That now you know we have a vehicle that's effectively a private equity fund of one that's going to make one acquisition uh, has sort of an embedded put option in it um, and is able to attract uh, I mean, billions and billions of dollars sight unseen. Uh, and so to me, that's just really a function uh, of, of zero cost of capital. And that's going to have all sorts of market distortions. And if you combine uh, a, a fundraising vehicle like that with a theme that is very um, attractive to people, uh, which clearly the energy transition is, uh, I think that's probably a recipe for for a mania, uh, which is what we're seeing today. Um, and I understand people's uh, attraction to the energy transition theme. You know, when you look forward and when people talk about uh, carbon emissions, it sort of does seem clear that a change will have to take place. Um, it seems as though, uh, you know, I think this is the huge error that people are making um, there's a perception that all this takes is a little bit of, uh, you know, deep thinking and and technological wizardry that, you know, that the answers are just out on the horizon. And I think that's the mistake that people are making. Um, but, you know, if you sort of back solve and you say, well, we're going to have to replace the entire global infrastructure, there seems to be a huge amount of capital needed to do that. And so you can make the case that maybe some of these guys with the silver bullet will will be able to have a pretty good next couple of decades. But I think it really puts the cart before the horse in the sense that a lot of these technologies, like I said before, really don't make a lot of sense. 
So while the narrative is attractive, I think when you dig a little bit deeper, um, there's some there's some problems there. And when you when you have a narrative that's attractive and, and capital that's easily accessed, um, you know, a lot goes out the window. And I think that's what you're seeing today. Yeah, and I think you hit the nail on the head there with in terms of the narrative. I mean, it seems to me, you know, SPACs are allowed to promote and create projections, you know, in ways that a traditional IPO process doesn't allow for. So you see companies that literally don't even have a working, you know, uh, prototype, uh, you know, of an EV or whatever. And they're projecting, you know, billions of dollars of sales and promoting the heck out of the stock in ways that you can't do typically, you know, through an IPO process. But, you know, to me... It, it, that promotional uh, ability and and these unbelievably you know uh, aggressive projections are 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 you know firing up this mania to a degree, but it's also you know ESG. I I really love to know your thoughts on on uh, ESG because you know, so much money has been flowing into ESG, uh, you know, and it's been accelerating over the past couple of years. Um, how much do you think the popularity of ESG has helped inflate? the bubble in green energy and conversely, you know, uh, depress this anti-bubble in traditional energy? I think it's been huge. You know, if you look at uh, traditional energy, it peaked out at about 30% of the S&P. Granted, that was all the way back in 1980. Um, and in this last cycle, it got down to 1.8%. So I think, you know, that doesn't happen uh, regularly. That doesn't happen. There's obviously a, a normal ebb and flow of all industries that sometimes they're they're overvalued and become large part of the S&P. But I don't think there's, and maybe you can correct me if you, if you know this, but I don't. we've not been able to find a sector that's gone from being a third of the S&P to less than 2% of the S&P. And in order to get that, I think you really need forced sellers. And so I think, you know, ESG has played certainly into the massive undervaluation and, and what I would say the sort of once in a generation uh, opportunity in more traditional energy, like oil and gas and E&P and things of that nature. So that certainly happened. Now, as far as ESG pushing capital into green uh, areas, I think that's really happened uh, as well. And and there's a variety of reasons for that. And there's a variety of reasons for why people are, are globbing onto the ESG uh, bandwagon. Um, and I think, you know, Part of part of the issue has been that for the last five or six years, you know, if your ESG guidelines told you to stay away from the extractive industries, so oil and gas and metals and mining, uh, with the exception of the last you know, six months, that was probably the right decision. And so you've been able to have this sort of strange, you know, have your cake and eat it too moment where you can do right by the environment, do right by society uh, and, and enjoy a tailwind on returns. Um, you know, in general, it's not clear that that should persist going forward in the sense that ESG limitations, you know, it's difficult to argue how limiting your investable universe will add to returns. You know, you would think that over time, um, having fewer options almost by definition can only hurt returns. Uh, so we'll have to wait and see, you know, particularly when you get a bull market going in some of these things um, that have been now starved for capital, like metals and mining and oil and gas, how that'll have to be adjusted. But I think that absolutely the sort of narrative around ESG investing uh, has certainly pulled a lot of capital into the uh, green energy sectors. And, and the problem really, when, when it there's, there's a host of problems and 
people have debated whether or not it's effectively the investor's role to become involved with uh, environmental concerns or whether that's left better left to other parties. Um, but really what I think is kind of interesting is that, uh, and a little bit discouraging, is that even if you think that it's the role of the equity investor to set governance policies to help promote good environmental outcomes, what the ESG frameworks are pushing people to do is not um, is not going to result in that. We're not going to get the reductions in CO2 uh, that people hope for. Uh, and, and we can talk about why that is and we can talk about, you know, the countries that have taken on huge renewable mandates and really haven't seen the impact in CO2 emissions that, that one might expect. Um, and, and we can talk about all that. I think it's fascinating. But, you know, turning it around a little bit, we manage a, a strategy, a natural resource equity strategy. Um, you know, we do own oil and gas in there. Uh, we we do not own renewables for, for a lot of the reasons that we can talk about. Uh, but, you know, we have about 20% of our portfolio in uranium. And uranium has been shown time and again to be the only source of baseload carbon-free electricity. Now, we also own about 15%, I believe, of the fund in copper-related equities. Now, copper is clearly critical uh, to a lot of developmental plans in, in terms of electrifications of places like China and India. But if we do get a renewable push and, and a huge uh, wind and solar push, copper, we're going to need a lot of copper to be able to do that. So, you know, right there, we sort of have, you know, 35% of the fund uh, in, in things that we think, and frankly, we know uh, are, are key pillars uh, to a carbon reduction strategy. Um, and yet, according to any ESG metric, you know, we, we don't rank all that high. Now, I should point out that the, um, you know, benchmark S&P weighting of uranium is, is pretty much zero. Uh, you know, so to have a 20% uranium weighting is, is, is drastically overweighted technology that's been shown to help reduce carbon. Uh, and yet the ESG metrics don't, don't pick it up. And so that's where you kind of end up, you know, kind of shrugging your shoulders and saying, well, I don't really know what we're trying to accomplish with a lot of these frameworks. Uh, and, and, you know, do they really sort of make sense to sort of formalize because they end up missing a lot of what we're trying to actually accomplish. It's such a great point. And I think that's my, my biggest problem with ESG is the, the framework, the, the metrics they use, because you take, I mean, Tesla is, you know, a popular ESG stock, probably overweight in, in, uh, you know, every ESG fund you might look at. And, you know, You've done a terrific amount of research on, you know, just the carbon production that goes into the batteries and, you know, these things that are created. But to me, it was when uh, Tesla decided to invest their cash into Bitcoin, which is obviously a, a major, you know, carbon uh, source of sure. carbon being put into the atmosphere. How do you keep Tesla in an ESG framework, uh, you know, after after that? And on the flip side, you have a stock like Occidental Petroleum, who's investing heavily in carbon recapture. And, uh, you know, that, that stock's excluded from ESG. So, I, you know, I think that the framework itself is, is very flawed and, and you make a really good point. But I, I want to get to, uh, you know, this, the capital that's flowed in. Because to me, one of the things that, that made energy so attractive was kind of the, these, these companies started getting starved for capital after the, the oil price crash. And, and the oil price crash was really created by, all of this, uh, I guess, cheap capital that the companies were able to raise uh, after the financial crisis. Fed takes interest rates down to zero, and there's a, you know cheap cheap money to borrow and go drill. 
and that we get the oil price crash in 2014, it seems to me that all this capital that's now flowing into green energy is going to inevitably create a similar type of bust in, in that sector. Do you think that's reasonable? I do. I, I think it's it's almost you know more than reasonable. I think it's almost becoming a foregone conclusion. Uh, and and like I said, you know, you just have to see some of these projects being bid on now uh, with you know four percent project IRRs. And I can tell you that in the worst uh, of the capital um, glut uh, in, in the E and P sector. Uh, and you could you could debate whether or not they were sort of cherry picking their best areas and wells and whatever. But, you know, the E&P companies still at least pretended to have a 10 percent plus project IRR, including, you know, most of them said that their wells could do 30 and 40 percent. Now, they, they might have been stretching there a little bit. Uh, but, you know, I, I, I was just astounded uh, to see sort of where these companies uh, are are agreeing to sort of bid new projects at. It's a really, really thin margin. Uh, it's a function of, of how much capital is at work. You know, it's obviously a, a straight line between seeing the capital go to work, seeing more people compete for the same projects, and then seeing the uh, expected IRRs come down on those projects. Um, but, you know, you're talking about for what's a very, very, very uh, physical process still, you're talking about an extremely thin margin as far as I'm concerned. And then obviously you sort of add on to that any project in my mind, uh, or, or not any, but a lot of projects that then sort of have to go on and rely upon structured financing and debt uh, in order to sort of make the equity capital work, you know, that that's when you're sort of in those later innings of, of a capital cycle. And I think that's what we're seeing in, in the renewable sector too. So I, I think that it's, you know, just to put these numbers in perspective, you know, modern day wind farms are being uh, modeled with assumed 25 year lives on the windmills. Um, you know, the early generation windmills and wind turbines, uh, a lot of them have suffered sort of early degradation and have lasted 15 years or so where they were expected to have lasted 20. Now, if you talk to the industry, they'll tell you that they've learned a lot from those first generation windmills uh, and, and turbines. And now you're talking about, uh, you know, be, having been able to take it from 20 to 25 years expected lives and, and be able to hit those numbers a lot uh, more reliably. Um, but we won't know. Uh, you know, and so to me, and sort of as a value investor who likes to think about a margin of safety, uh, when you don't know something, you better you better have some sort of a margin there to be able to protect you and a, and a buffer. Uh, and, and instead, we have a very very thin buffer. Um, you know, of, like I said, you know, single digit IRRs at the project level, made attractive by by adding debt, and um, you know that that just very rarely ends well. Yeah, it's you know to me it's it's fascinating. I mean, uh, you could almost just devise, uh, you know, a, an investment thesis, a longer term investment thesis just around uh, capital flows. So when you see tons of capital flowing into a sector, you, you could be assured the returns are going to go way down. And, and I think that's, you know, what we're seeing. But, you know, a lot of people have also made the point recently that, uh, you know, these bubbles, why, while they end up being bad for investors, can end up being good things for society. So, you know, uh, you think about, you know, um, you know, probably the best example I can think of is the internet bubble. And uh, there was so much capital flowing into the, the networking sector. And, you know, we had, we laid so many fiber optic cables and stuff through cheap capital, uh, you know, during that time that, yeah, you know, when the dot-com mania bust invest, you know, NASDAQ went down 80% plus and investors, you know, 
Cisco, famously still below its 2000 peak. Um, but it laid the foundation, you know, for the, the internet and all the, you know, the, what we're recording this podcast on, on now. And so do you, do you see that happening here again, maybe with renewables and that, you know, investors may, you know, get, get hammered again, but there could be good things that, that come out of it for society. That's an interesting question, you know, and, and that's that's the most hopeful and optimistic take I've heard, uh, you know, it, it, on on excess capital spilling in. But I suppose when it when it the question I guess you'd have to ask about the Internet is, you know, what would have developed if we had not laid down all that, you know, at the time unproductive capital, you know, would we have sort of been able to move to, to a more efficient allocation? And the question that the answer is, I, I really don't know. The problem that I see with the uh energy transition in the green energy bubble that that's taking place right now um, kind of cuts the other way, which is to say there's some interesting technologies out there. Uh, they're, they're not necessarily getting the same attention or they definitely are not getting the same attention that wind and solar and, and lithium ion batteries are, but they are very uh, promising in terms of helping to alleviate global CO2. And what I'm thinking about, I'm thinking about things like um, some of the technologies surrounding some of the what they call the small modular nuclear reactors, uh, which which sort of help with safety concerns and things like that, and, and might actually help provide um, you know a tailwind towards us rolling out widespread nuclear power. Uh, things like new technologies uh, of creating uh, steel that potentially could uh, limit the amount of carbon that's emitted. Um, these are really hard engineering tasks to accomplish but there's people out there that are that are trying to do it and i think on some of the best technology uh what we see anyway and a lot of these are sort of earlier stage and private and what have you but you know some of the the more off the run uh, technologies that are out there i actually see some promising developments and what i worry about most is that if you have a big uh, bubble in in green in green energy and energy transition and stuff like that, and all the air comes out of it, uh, what does that do to the capital availability for, for those technologies that actually could work? Um, you know, does that just set the entire sort of theme back a, a decade or two? And that would be a real shame, uh, because I do think that there's some good, good things that are out there. And, and we saw something a little bit similar to that uh, about a decade ago, or a little bit more, where uh, quite a bit of money was, was drawn into the battery uh, sector at the time. And Batteries, I think, are just the most fascinating and, and, and interesting topic I can ever imagine because they're so poorly understood by, by the layperson. There's sort of a prevailing view that battery technologies just were just around the corner from a major breakthrough. And I think what a lot of people don't realize is that the modern lithium-ion battery was developed in the early 90s and has basically been improved upon incrementally ever since. Uh, and, but about a decade ago, there's a lot of money that got pulled into that sector, sort of a mini bubble. Uh, in battery technology and a lot of impaired capital uh, and basically sort of a lost decade almost of, of battery development after that. Um, and so, you know, I think that that's the biggest risk. If you have serious capital, which now you do, uh, you know, the battery bubble, I don't know that anyone even really uh, noticed it other than there was some embarrassment for the Obama administration when some of these companies that had government funding went, went bankrupt. Um, but you know, now it's a different story. You know, now you're talking about trillions of dollars, I think, going into a lot of these uh, more conventional renewables. Uh, and if there's problems there, I mean, I think that that really risks setting back some of 
some of the more interesting future technologies. Um, so, yeah, I think I think the, um, the your your view is definitely optimistic, uh, but, but I think unfortunately is probably not um, not likely. Uh, the, the other challenge with some of the renewable technologies, like wind and solar, notably, uh, is that there's sort of this view that you know once we get the windmills up and once we get the solar panels up. They'll just create clean and efficient and abundant energy forever. Uh, and obviously, it's true that that you know the wind is a renewable resource. We're not going to run out of wind, and we're not going to run out of sunshine. But people do forget that the uh, infrastructure, the windmills and the solar panels themselves, um, have you know very finite lives to them. Uh, I, I mean, you know, it's sort of amazing. But but in many cases, the the life of a windmill. Uh, or a solar panel is probably lo- less than the life of a uh, oil and gas well, uh, whereas the oil and gas well is definitely perceived to be, you know, every every molecule you produce, you're never getting back, and we're just perpetually running out. Um, you know, I guess that's true, but at the same time, uh, you know, the the life of a of a renewable wind and solar asset are definitely finite as well, um, and and so you know if you unlike fiber optics and unlike network infrastructure, which basically has a usable life, probably, I, I don't know, I'm not a, I'm not a telecom um, uh, analyst. Uh, my brother-in-law actually is, I should ask him, but I presume that, um, you know, these fiber optic networks probably have a useful life of 50 plus years. Uh, whereas on the renewable side of things, you're talking about, you know, having to replace those assets fairly quickly. Yeah. You know, you know- I'm glad that you bring up, you know, not just the the problems with the transition, but potential solutions. I mean, I, that's what I one of the things I really liked about reading your latest piece. Um, but I, I, I want to dig into a lot of a lot of you know before we you know dig into the uh, you know the, the solutions. I want to help people understand the challenges um, with a lot of these optimistic scenarios. You you uh, in your latest report you write. Um, we estimate the move toward renewables and EVs would generate nearly 45 billion tons of incremental CO2. At best, a huge amount of the expected carbon savings will be undone by the necessary manufacturing. At worst, the impact could be net detrimental. Um, can you just help kind of explain some of the numbers behind that conclusion? Yeah, absolutely. So I think a key concept, um, and it might sound a little bit, you know, academic and intimidating, but I think it's pretty intuitive once you really think through it. A key concept here is the idea of energy return on energy invested. So other people call it, you know, life cycle analysis and things like that. So it's looking at a system, an energy system, and and taking account of all of the usable energy it produces uh, in relation to the amount of energy that's required uh, to make the system work, if you will. So in the case of um, a coal-fired electricity generating facility, you're talking about all of the energy needed to develop the coal mine, uh, manufacture, or, or rather mine and produce um, you know, a ton of coal, uh, process the coal, um, get it to the power plant, uh, and then burn it, because obviously the uh, power plant itself has a certain efficiency factor. And so you lose some of the energy there. Uh, and so you, you look at over the life of the entire plant, uh, what is the total energy in uh, relative to the total energy out? And that's known as the energy return on energy invested. And it's an incredibly fascinating topic. And unfortunately, it's one of those topics, the more you read, uh, you, know, you kind of go down a rabbit hole a little bit. But by and large, uh, traditional hydrocarbons, whether it be modern day, efficient natural gas plants or uh, coal plants 
are basically operating in the order of magnitude of 30 to 1. So you generate 30 units of power for every unit of energy that, that comes in. Um, if you think about it another way, it's the reciprocal of that, which is 1 over 30, about 3%. That's how much energy gets consumed by the system itself. Uh, and the rest is available for use to end users. Um, when you make the transition to wind and solar, you're talking about energy systems that are fundamentally, you know, almost an order of magnitude less uh, efficient. And, and where does that come from? It really comes from, uh, I would say, sort of three different areas. The first place that it comes from is that inherently wind and uh, sunlight are less energy dense than, than burning a lump of coal. I think we all understand that intuitively that, you know, if you, when you think about all the heat and energy that comes out of your barbecue in the backyard or whatever, your gas powered grill, uh, and you consider, you know, even the force of a, of a stiff breeze, you, you're wildly different in terms of the energy density per unit of area and things of that nature. So the first thing that people have to realize is that in order to get that amount of energy out of sources like wind and sun, uh, you're talking about big things and big things require a lot of energy to build. So, so right off the bat, your energy uh, return on energy invested is, is not in the same order of magnitude. You know, put a different way, Traditional hydrocarbons have basically captured millions of years of the Earth's temperature and pressure uh, in order to embed all that energy into uh, the coal or natural gas itself. Uh, and then you're, you as the end user are taking advantage of that. And you don't get that when it comes to wind and solar. So, so right off the bat, if you just looked straight up at the, uh, at the wind turbine or if you looked at the solar panel, you're talking about instead of a energy return on energy invested of 30 to 1, you're talking about, you know, at best 10 to 1 on a gross basis. Now, what do I mean by that? Uh, well, gross basis means that it does not take into account the number one problem with wind and solar, which is that they're intermittent. They don't always uh, generate power. And obviously, the people in Texas have seen that recently. Uh, but that's a problem of, of every uh windmill and solar panel around the world. There's effectively two or three different sources of intermittency. There's day to night fluctuations. There's you know clouds passing overhead or uh, changes to the breeze minute to minute. And then there's seasonal uh, variations, you know, winter to summer weather patterns. And each of them need to be addressed in a different way. Um, so one of the suggested ways that people have proposed to um, mitigate sort of minute to minute issues uh, is to overbuild the amount uh, of wind and solar that you need and, and to build it out, you know, over a big geographic area. Uh, but to put that in perspective, you know, if you have a one megawatt solar facility, it at best uh, will generate, you know, 20 percent uh, of that potential dispatch. Uh, you compare that to uh, coal plants and, and natural gas plants that can operate, you know, with with much, much lower downtime. You're talking about, you know, uh, 75, depending on what you maintenance schedules and things like that, but, you know, I think 65 to 75% efficiencies uh, or, or, or uptime is not um, uncommon. So right off the bat, you know, you have to overbuild to get the same amount of useful power coming out the other side. Uh, and, and in many cases, the feasibility studies suggest overbuilding to an order of magnitude of two to three times what you actually might need, if not more, uh, and then effectively just dumping that excess power uh, when when it gets created, uh, if at all possible, 
um, because that's sort of the cheapest way to come get, get around some of this intermittency issue. The other thing, obviously, you know, overbuilding is not going to get you through the night and things like that. So the other thing that uh, you really need in order to talk about realistic wind and solar, you need a lot of battery backup or some type of energy storage. Now, there's some areas that uh, you can do this. You can do pumped hydro where you basically pump water up a hill and then let it go down a hydro plant in order to generate power. Um, you know, that works if you have water in a hill. Uh, but if you don't, then that's obviously not going to be feasible. And, and most people, if you're talking to them seriously about sort of widespread renewable power, agree that it has they feel that it has to be lithium ion battery storage. Now, there you're back to the same problem as Tesla. It takes so much energy and so much carbon to uh, create these batteries to back up the, 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 the solar and wind. And particularly if you're talking about trying to do all this to then run a Tesla, you know, so now you have an energy undense medium such as, um, such as uh, wind and solar. You need to back it up at the site using batteries. You need to overbuild it, you transmit it. Then you have a battery on the other end to drive a car around. Uh, it, it ends up with a process that's dramatically less efficient now. Uh, the question there is, you know, is the efficiency loss uh, enough to offset the additional or, or the additional CO2 that, that burning uh, oil and gas comes with? And, and that's where things get really kind of interesting, because as we wrote in the letter, you know, at best, a lot of that gain will be undone. Um, and at worst, you know, depending on how how polluting the current grid is to create the, the wind and solar infrastructure, uh, it, it could actually be a net negative. So you look at a country like Germany, who's had a huge renewables push in the last 20 years, and they've seen their carbon per uh, unit of energy go down by about 13%, which is largely in line with what the U.S. has done, even though we've had no uh, renewable mandate to the same to the same extent that they have. Um, so you know, that's where I think that these, these problems really arise. The first is just the question of energy density. And the second is the overbuilding and the batteries that are needed. And what you're left with is an energy return on energy invested. Instead of being 30 to 1, uh, you're talking about something that's anywhere between 1 to 1 and, and 4 to 1. Or put another way, something where either 25 to 75% of the total energy in the system is consumed getting there. So I'm sorry, I went on for a long time there. Um, I'm sure. I'm sure all of your listeners are, are now fast asleep. No, no, that's, that's perfect. It's actually fascinating stuff, and I'm glad you brought up the real world, exa world example of Germany, because you know the, the gains that they've made have been uh, a lot less than what was anticipated. You also talk about you know uh, the the gains, um, you know, like Norway has transitioned in terms of electric vehicles um, dramatically, and uh, you. Know, Talk, talk a little bit about, about that, too, because it's similar to the case in Germany with their push to renewables. It is. You know, in, in the case of Norway, you're talking about uh, EV penetration or you know, as far as all cars sold. I think last year it hit 70 percent. And um, if anyone likes to uh, watch the Super Bowl, you know, Will Ferrell had this hilarious ad in the Super Bowl about how Norway is out EVing the U.S. And it's true. Uh, EV sales in the U.S. have not broken 2 percent. and They're you know, pushing 70 percent in Norway. Uh, but what's amazing to me and, and really much more fascinating is that even though you're now, you know, seven in 10 cars that you're selling in Norway are, are electric, uh, your, your total CO2 per unit of energy has not really gone down. It's gone down again by about 10%, which is largely in line with the U.S. experience 
uh, and, and most other uh, developed countries. So, you know, here's sort of a, another example, you know, you taking the U.S. as a base case where, you know, the U.S., um, you know, even today is, is still largely free market. And, and so, you know, you, you let sort of the hand of the market do its thing. Uh, you, you've been able to achieve the same reduction in CO2 per primary unit of energy as, as you had in Germany uh, and as you had uh, in Norway, even though Germany has gone this huge wind and solar push and Norway has gone on this huge um, EV push. And there's reasons for it all. Uh, but part of the reason is that I think these technologies are not the panaceas that, that everyone hopes that they would be. And, you know, so it seems like even if we do make, I mean, there are a lot of reasons to, to believe, I guess, that even if we do push towards, uh, you know, renewables and electric vehicles in all these things, the, the the rewards, the payoff is not going to be as great as we probably need it to be to meet some of these climate goals that people have set. But the other side of that, too, that you point out, which is that a lot of these climate proposals also are based on a foundation of reducing overall energy consumption by 25 percent. Um, and, and you suggest that that's just simply not possible. What what, what leads you to believe that? I guess history, um, you know, and you're exactly right. When um, we started looking at some of these proposals and these plans, and 2020 was a really interesting year for a variety of reasons. Uh, but you know, one of the things was that obviously because of COVID, total energy demand was down last year. Uh, it's the first time that that's happened in quite some time. Um, and and as a result of that, uh, I think think tanks could come out and say 2019 was the peak year of oil demand. Uh, you know, people have been calling for peak oil demand sometime out in the future, but you couldn't obviously say that oil demand had peaked if it was still going up every day. So you had to say it's going to peak in a two years or three years or four years. And, and that was, you know, a dramatic statement, but, you know, kind of people said, oh, that's kind of interesting. But now all of a sudden, uh, because of COVID, you could say peak oil demand was actually last year. It's in the rearview mirror. And I think that was a lot more dramatic. And so you saw a proliferation of reports from people like the IEA and, and BP and stuff like that, that, that all sort of called for, uh, you know, lower and lower and lower uh, oil demand going forward. Now, what was interesting is that, you know, we read those reports and we dug into them quite deeply. And, and like you said, a huge amount of that reduction is actually predicated in less energy demand across the board. You know, so it's not just oil. Uh, they're assuming that oil demand goes down, but that every every demand goes down. And if you look on a per capita basis, it goes down about 25% over the next 20 years. Now, that would be really shocking. Um, to, to put it in perspective, you know, I think that it goes from, from shocking to just, you know, wildly impossible. On the shocking side of thing, I, I think we calculated it would take uh, OECD or developed market energy demand back to like 1955 levels. So certainly we have some discretionary energy that we use uh, in the developed world. You know, we definitely could live our lives more energy efficiently. Um, I don't think anyone wants to, uh, but, you know, I, people love driving big cars and things like that. We could definitely, definitely make strides there. But to, to hit the numbers that the uh, energy agencies are, are assuming, uh, assumes we go back to 1955 levels. Now, I don't see that happening. Uh, you know, that, that was something where, um, you know, there's no air travel or very, very dramatically less air travel, uh, you know, things of that nature, um, you know, home heating and cooling were not the same as they are now. So I think the likelihood that that happens is, is pretty, pretty low. Um, 
But even more dramatic than that is the idea that the emerging markets are actually expected to decline in terms of energy per capita over the next 20 years. Now, that's just not going to happen. Uh, you know, these countries are at a point in their economic development where they are all consuming dramatically more energy, not not less. There's no efficiency gains you can make when you take people who live a rural agrarian lifestyle and you urbanize them. Uh, I don't care how fuel efficient you make their homes and cars. Uh, the net energy that they use goes up dramatically. And we've seen this over and over and over again in something that we like to call the S-curve, which basically, you know, as, as the name suggests, there's a sort of period of low energy demand uh, at, at low levels of GDP, and then it ramps up dramatically at the sort of middle part, and then it begins to plateau. And you have a lot of people in that middle part right now, more than you've ever had before uh, by a wide margin. You know, I think between 1970 and today, the average has been about 700 million people in that sort of meaty middle part of the S-curve. You know, you're, you're now pushing, you know, three and a half billion people. Uh, and, and so the idea that that huge cohort, as they push through, uh, is going to consume less absolute energy per person uh, is not is not going to happen. So if that's where your an analysis uh, is based upon, then um, I guess you're setting yourself up for, for disaster. So the realities of the energy transition are that, you know, the, the efficiencies of these uh, new green energies are probably not anywhere near what, what we would hope them to be. And at the same time, we, we just can't expect the world to reduce its energy consumption anywhere near to the degree, like you said, you know, back to 1950s levels for, for, for those of us, that, you know, developed worlds that, that, that is, uh, I agree with you. That's just not, not tenable. Um, so it, it would seem that, you know, no matter how aggressive we are at pushing towards renewables and EVs, EVs and these types of things that traditional energy is going to be with us for for a, a much longer time than a lot of these optimistic assumptions um you know would suggest uh i i guess what that leads me to is is ironically it would seem that you know the best way to play uh you know this this push towards i guess the transition to to green energy is uh, you know through commodities because a lot of the commodities are used in in this process, and then also in you know uh, cleaner energy play plays like natural gas and and you mentioned uh, nuclear and you know uranium before. Sure, yeah, I, th I think that's right. Um, you know, I, I guess it depends to what extent you know you you um, to what extent you're looking for economic returns, I guess, for, versus versus altruistic goals. But but I would point out that, and again, this is to me that. The more interesting part about these things is that even even if what you're trying to do is stop global warming, you're, we're going down the wrong path, and that's what's really scary to me. So yeah, I would think that you know looking at things, you know, if if you're open to looking at traditional hydrocarbons, then I think that that's certainly they're going to be with us for longer than people expect, and things are going to grow, uh, and we've starved them for capital. If you absolutely, for whatever reason, you know, refuse to have any uh, traditional energy, uh, then then I guess it would be things that for lack of a better word, can help make the problem better. Uh, and now what is that? That's probably, you know, copper to help electrify more and more around the world. And, and it's uranium, which we'll talk about, or I'll talk about here in a second. But, you know, on the natural gas side, I think that's an important point because that's really behind why the U.S. has been able to lower its CO2 per unit of energy without a, as big a renewables push. It's that we've transitioned from coal to natural gas 
thanks to the cheap, abundant shale gas that we've uh, enjoyed here in the United States, starting basically in the middle part of the 2000s. Um, and, and natural gas uh, is about the same energy efficiency, energy in, energy out, as coal, about 30 to 1, about half the CO2. And so, you know, if you make that transition, um, you know, it's not taking you down to, you know, CO2 zero or whatever, uh, although I would point out that, that neither are wind and solar. Uh, but but it is, you know, getting you uh, a good reduction in CO2 without a huge impairment in the energy efficiency. Um, if we want to then really start to think about how uh, to really improve the situation, and, and I've told you all the ways that things can go south, you know, going from an energy return on energy invested of 30 to one down to four to one clearly is going to be a challenge. Um, but amazingly, you know, nuclear uh, energy, uh, nuclear fission in particular, uh, which is you know, splitting, splitting of uh, uranium isotopes, which is how we generate power today, um, is, has an energy uh, return on energy invested of almost 100 to one. So right off the bat, you're talking about a huge surplus uh, of excess net power available for every unit of energy you put into the system. So, you know, here you are, coal and gas, 30 to 1. You can either step and get much worse, uh, but but have, quote unquote, no carbon, or you can go and step and get much more energy efficient and have effectively zero carbon. Uh, and, and to me, it's just astounding that, that you know, we've all sort of gone the wrong direction, uh, if you will. Now, I think that's beginning to change. You know, there's a little bit of a, a better perception today that uh, perhaps um, uranium and nuclear power has a role to play. Uh, and, and so I hope that that continues. Um, you know, the current administration has actually been a little bit more or substantially more pro-nuclear than I think some people had been concerned they might be. Um, and, and so, you know, maybe we are on, on the verge of a, of a new sort of uranium uh, renaissance. But I think that, you know, when you look at the sort of ticking the boxes, um, you know, you want something that's going to be more energy efficient, not less energy efficient, where that can recycle energy into more energy uh, and into abundant surplus energy as efficiently as possible. And, and to the extent that you're concerned about the environment, you want them to be able to do that in a way that doesn't generate CO2. Um, and there's not a lot of things that tick that box. There is one. I'm shocked that it's the it's the technology that we've developed and, and discovered, you know, 60 plus years ago. But we still seem uh, unwilling uh, as a society to to embrace it. But but I'm hoping that that's changing. Well, that, that's another, I guess, irony of the the ESG mandate is that, you know, in in starving a lot of these commodity focused companies of capital, they're really making the 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 cost of the transition to green energy more expensive in the in the long run. And so it's really kind of counterproductive to its own goals. It is, you know, it, it is, it's just astounding to me, um, you know, talking about before, you know, plug power and Ballard and things like that, not, not to sort of gang up on them, but, you know, plug power with, with limited revenues and, and a market cap of, you know, at, at a couple of weeks ago is pushing, I don't know, 30 or, or $40 billion and Cameco, uh, which is, uh, and I should full disclosure, we, we do own Cameco, um, but you know Cameco, which is basically one of the only producing uranium companies in the world at this point, uh, boasts after after the recent run up from you know five to fifteen in the last twelve months has a whopping market cap of uh, you know six billion dollars. Um, but you know one of those is going to be able to help address carbon going forward, and one will not. 
It's it's fascinating. Um, I've I, you know I've taken up a bunch of your time already, Adam. I, I you know before I let you go, um, I'm just curious: is there anything that you do outside of the markets, outside of the world of finance, that helps you just kind of push a mental reset button, or even maybe informs your investment process and makes you better at what you do? Well, gosh, that's, that I was I wasn't prepared for that one. You know, I think I think as a uh, as a I've gone from being a fund analyst to a bit of a you know entrepreneur or whatever, having gone out on our own a couple of years ago. So unfortunately, for the last five years or so, there hasn't been much in the way of uh, mental reset buttons. Uh, in fact, even I, I would have said read, but even my reading list in the last twelve months has been mostly uh, energy books. So, so I think I probably am overdue for a reset. I'm, I'm like the router; every every you reset it, it works better. Yeah, it's, a, it's funny. I think you're the only other person besides Michael Oliver who does, you know, momentum structural analysis. When I asked him that question, he said, no, no, this is my life. The markets are my life. And so I, I, I totally get it. I think when you find something you're passionate about and, it, uh, you know, it, it, it uh, I guess, absorbs you in, in that type of a way, it's absolutely understandable. But Adam, thank you so much for taking well, the time. This has been I- wonderful. Absolutely. Thank you so much. And I will, I will give one last plug. I'll, I'll give a plug to my, uh, to my wife and two, two wonderful uh, daughters at home who they're, those are probably the only things that have kept me grounded in the last five years. Yeah. Well, and, and one other plug, I got to ask you, where can people kind of keep up with you and your ideas? So, you know, we've always been a huge, huge, uh, believers in putting everything that we do out in the public domain. And so we write extensively and everything that we do is out in the, uh, on our website. Um, you can find it, at, look up Gehring and Rosenzweig, if you can figure out how to spell it. Otherwise the website is go Rosen. We figured that was nice and short G O R O Z E N.com. Uh, and that has all of our writings, uh, going back, uh, several years. Um, and, uh, please keep up with us that way. Yeah, and what a wonderful resource. I, I highly recommend everybody go check out the website. And thank you for shortening it because even spelling your last name has been a challenge for me. But Adam, thank you for Absolutely. taking the time. This has been great. Thank you so much. I really appreciate it. And that does it for another episode of Super Investors and the Art of Worldly Wisdom. As always, you can find notes and links related to this episode at thefelderreport.com. Thank you for listening, and until next time, buy low, sell high. Man looks in the abyss. There's nothing staring back at him. At that moment, man finds his character. And that is what keeps him out of the abyss. <laughs>